Romans chapter 5. Therefore, therefore is always important. Whenever you come across a therefore in the Bible, it's important. And it refers to something that's already been said. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Now, that's what the first four chapters were about, laying out this idea that we are justified. We are declared right, even though we're sinners, even though we've, you know, we, we've sinned against God, rebelled against God, and we can't save ourselves. We've been declared righteous. We've been declared right by God. We've been declared in good standing because of faith. It is by our faith. You see this in Paul all the time, that you know, our salvation is by grace through faith. Grace and faith works together. And when we talk about faith, it's a little bit like talking about the death of Jesus and the resurrection. When you talk about the death, you assume the resurrection. When you talk about the resurrection, you understand there was a death. When you talk about the faith we have, you understand there's a, that grace was involved. When we talk about grace, we understand that faith is following or faith is connected. Those two are basically inseparable. And so we have been declared right by God because of our faith, our faith, our trusting. We commit our life to him because of that. Because God has declared us to be in right standing. Paul now makes six statements from um, this first verse through the 11th verse about something that we can experience. First of all, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we are at peace with God. Now, think about this. We are, because of our sin, rebels in the, hand, in the eyes of God. Uh, I think it was uh, Jonathan Edwards who preached a sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I mean, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not the type of sermon title we would have today. But, you know, back in the 17, uh, was that 1600s? Back in the 1600s, that was, a pretty, um, that was a pretty common type of sermon. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We are in a state of conflict with God. And now, says Paul says, we have peace with God. The word peace means to be where we ought to be, harmonious relationship with God. How is it that we have a harmonious relationship with God? Well, it's because of our Lord Jesus Christ. We put our faith in Jesus, and it's through our Lord Jesus Christ that we have that peace. It's interesting how often Paul uses the term Lord Jesus Christ. Lord uh, is, in many ways, refers to the essence of who uh, Jesus is. The Lord is a reference to, you know, I'm preaching about this Sunday, as a matter of fact, going back to Moses, when God said, the Lord has sent you, the Lord has sent you. Uh, it, is, it is basically the title of God, to understand who God is. Uh, Jesus is his name, Christ is the messianic reference. And so you have Jesus, who is the Christ, who is Lord, which means he is God. And so all of this peace happens through someone who, Brings that peace. It's not uncommon. It's not quite unlike, or roughly, it's similar to. I guess I put it that way. There's a correlation between two parties who are warring, who are in disagreement, and a third party comes in and brings, negotiates a type of peace. Well, don't take that too far that analogy, but understand Jesus has brought peace. But also remember, He's brought peace because of all that God has done. The peace is in the hands of our Lord. We are the beneficiaries of peace. We are not the instigators of peace. We are the ones who benefit by being at peace with God. So he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also, also through Jesus, notice this, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. I find that a fascinating, Paul has a fascinating way of putting it. We have obtained an introduction by our faith 
into the grace that is connected with peace. So here we have this connection between faith and grace. Let me say this. When you, when you read and you understand, grace is the attribute of God. It's an attribute of God that he bestows upon us as a gift. Faith is the result of God's grace. So faith is always connected to God's grace. He gives that. She can stay. She's probably the cutest person here. It's not about us. Bye-bye, Hattie. Joe, we'll miss you. Just left us Brian. That really wasn't a fair trade-off. And so we have, we have obtained the introduction. We, don't, we, don't, we have all of the faith we're going to have, but the word introduction brings about the idea of that we are now experiencing the kind of faith for the first time. When you're introduced to someone, you are experiencing them. If, if someone comes up and you're introduced to that person, that entire person's there, but it's kind of the beginning, it's the mark, it's the, on, it's, it's, it's the beginning point of, of, of having that type of relationship with them. And so what we see is we have the introduction through Jesus of grace. We experience that grace and that faith. And so we need to understand, Paul would write uh, later on in Ephesians, for by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Grace and faith. You're saved by grace through the pathway of faith. Faith brings you to grace. Faith brings us, introduces us to grace. And now we stand that way. So having been declared righteous, we stand in grace. We are fixed there. It's a permanent position. Once you've been declared righteous, you cannot be undeclared that way. Put it to you this way, in our legal system, once we are declared to be innocent or not guilty, however you want to word it, once we are declared that, we stand that way and that cannot change on that crime. Commit another crime, it could be different. But if you have stood trial and been declared innocent, not guilty, you stand in the eyes of the law on that particular charge, you stand forever in that position of not guilty. We stand in grace permanently, having been declared righteous by grace through that faith. And then we exalt or rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, the hope of the glory, it's, it's, it's always a fascinating thing, hope. Hope is one of the most difficult words to truly describe, like joy, because there's nothing concrete about joy. Happiness can be concrete. Um, angels and the, and the Yankees, I mean, uh, the A's and the Yankees are playing a baseball game today. If the Yankees win... Joe Andrews, campus pastor, will be happy. There's a concrete relationship. If the A's win, I'll be happy because Joe will be sad. So there'll be that, there'll be that connection. When the Detroit Lions manage to win a football game, Brian is happy about three times a year. So there's a concrete connection. Joy doesn't have that. Joy is a positional play. We're, we are positioned to always be in the condition of joy. 
Hope kind of is that way. We, we rejoice. We have joy because of hope. We have hope in something that we're guaranteed. Now, most people in our world, hope is wishful thinking. I, I hope my team wins. I hope when I get home, my wife fixes my favorite dinner. I, I hope the preacher will be short this Sunday. You know, you, you're wishing on things. But biblical hope is an assurance of something that's going to happen that we probably haven't yet benefited from in this lifetime. So in this lifetime, I'm living in a world where there are sins and there are problems there are all these things. But I have a hope, a fixed hope on something to come, and that is the glory of God. Now, I experience the glory of God in this life in a limited way just by being in the presence of, of, of Christ. But ultimately, when I leave this life to go into the next life, I am going to spend eternity surrounded in the glory of God, which is the manifestation of his holiness. In that, I have a hope. It is not wishful thinking. It's an assurance of something I've not yet obtained. That's why Paul will write, and already has written in 1 Corinthians, three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. They are three things that have an eternal uh, concept in our relationship with God. So hope is an eternal aspect. It's realized in the fullness of God's glory. So notice what he's saying. I've been justified by God. I've been declared right by God. I have peace with God. I have faith into this grace. And I have hope in the glory of God. Three really strong affirmations of the benefit of God saving me. When I was not right before God, when I lived in sin, I had none of those things. I had no hope. I was not at peace with God, not experienced grace. But when God declares me righteous, all of those things are a part of my life. And then in verse 3 he says, but not only this, there's more. We have something else we exalt or we rejoice in. It's our tribulations. Now, that just doesn't make sense. We rejoice in our tribulations. Now, James says, and James is probably the first book actually written of of the New Testament books. After he says hello, he begins his book, which means all all of the New Testament begins chronologically with after James says hello, he says, consider it pure joy when you suffer the trials or tribulations of many types. There is this recognition that followers of Jesus, Christians, back then followers of the way, or disciples, would experience difficulty based on their relationship with Christ. So they face trials and tribulations. It's not just the trials and tribulations that everybody faces, though those also. There is a uniqueness to some of the trials and tribulations we face as followers of Jesus because it is based on the fact that we are Christians or we are followers of Christ. So if you're a part of that faith community, that faith world, there's going to be things that you experience. The word tribulation has the idea of pressure, the idea of something pressing down, of a weighty thing. Rejoice when you experience these trials and tribulations. Just as James would say, consider it the purest of joy when you suffer the trials of many types. Now why would we rejoice? And let me, I'm going to say this. When I'm suffering, I'm not happy about it. He never says, be happy. But there's a sense of joy 
There's a perspective. It's a world perspective. It, listen, I don't like suffering. And I don't want to face trials and tribulations. And if people know me well, no, I try to avoid as much of that stuff as I can. I really don't want it. And I would rather God bless somebody else with trials and tribulations. I even can give them a list. Some of you are on it. I pray all the time, let that so-and-so go through trials and tribulations, God, so that it brings about perseverance, endurance. James says the same thing. Consider it pure joy when you suffer the trials of many types because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. There is something about persevering. Now, it's not, pers- just, it's not just persevering. Persevering through a difficult time. It is persevering in our faith. In my faith. So, about 30 years ago, my gosh, 30 years ago next month, Debbie and I began a three-year journey. No fault of our own. And in that journey, we learned to trust God in ways I had never imagined I would need to. I have tremendous faith in God. I I think of all the things in the day, if someone would say, what is your greatest spiritual attribute? I don't know if I have any great ones, but I say the best one is I trust God all the time. I trust him. I I just got great confidence in God. I developed that to the degree that I did through the pressings, the tribulations, the struggles of life, and the big ones in particular. Perseverance is the ability to be steadfast. You know, speaking a while ago of Reformation Day, part of the Reformation, John Calvin, Calvin just put it brilliantly. I, I don't think I've ever seen anyone word it better than Calvin. The saints, believers, persevere to the end. Let's think about that. The follower of Christ endures life to the end. That is the mark of faith. At the end of the day, there are several marks of faith. How do you know? One of the important ones is that you don't quit being a Christian. We like as Baptists like to say, once saved, always saved. That rose off the tongue better. And I, and, I, and I believe that. It's just a little more passive way of saying the same thing. Once we're saved, we're always saved. But how do I know I'm saved? Because I persevere to the end. So I, you can put it the way you want it. Once saved, always saved. Perseverance. Now, there are, there are so-called Christian denominations that believe you can lose your salvation. And I would simply say, you do not understand grace and faith. If you think you can lose your salvation, you don't understand God. You don't understand grace. And you have a view of God that is deficient to the point of Heresy. Strong about that. I'm not going to mix any words on it. God saves me. I can't undo that. And the evidence I've been saved is in the midst of all my tribulations, I stick to it. I'm not saying I don't stumble from time to time. I'm not saying I don't get mad. I don't have doubt. But in the end, in the end, persevering. Look what perseverance does. Proven character. People who go through difficult time have a proven character, a proven 
way of behaving and proven character, what does it bring out? It brings that hope. It's come full circle. I have hope in the glory of God. And when I suffer, ultimately, when I'm facing tribulations, it grows my hope. And I love what Paul says in verse 5. Hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Who was given to us. Hope never disappoints because the love of God, the love and grace poured out within our hearts. Look, look at the things that are mentioned in these five verses. Faith, hope, and love. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. All that's just mentioned right there. It's a powerful five verses. I mean, you just, just think, and, and Paul's just saying in all of that, all of this stuff I have, I just rejoice. Now, I've never said, thank you, God, for letting me suffer. But I have said, God, thank you for getting me through that suffering. You know, by the way, I don't ever want to go back. I don't, listen, I'm human. I don't ever want to go back. And as I said the other day, I don't want to suffer. I've suffered enough in this life. I don't want to suffer anymore. But if I do, here's what I know. I'm doing it, but God has something in store for me. God has a plan for me. He needs me to get to a better place so he can use me in a way he's never used me before. I know this. When I suffer, God is going to use me in a way he's never used me. So you know what I do? I rejoice and be glad. Verse 6. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were helpless. Now, all of humanity. You ever think about Jesus dying at the right time? When did Jesus die? Right when God wanted him to. That's when he died. I could spend some time going into great detail about the conditions of the world that led to the death of Christ and why that, that was the optimum time for the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Roman Empire, the ability to travel, just the way the world was, all that stuff. But let me just say this. Whatever time God decides to do something is always the right time. And I've got to get on his time schedule. Sometimes, and we talked about, a lot about this on Sundays. You know, each, Israel was in Egypt 430 years. Well, there was a reason for that. I explained it Sunday. You don't need to explain it again. God will do things at just the right time. And notice who that Jesus Christ, or Christ died for the who? The ungodly. Not for the Jews, not for the Gentiles, not for America. For the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? Me, everybody. Now, I love this. One will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man. Someone would dare even to die. Now, is there anybody you would die for? I'm looking at all of you. There's not a soul in here I would die for. Not one of you. I might have when Hattie was in here. She might have counted. The rest of you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't die for any of you. I'd say if it was between you and me, I said, let me know. You know just when you get to heaven, just you know, save me a place. I'll be there. I have a wife and a daughter. That's about it. I'd die for them. Maybe my sisters. If I was, Maybe. And that's just the truth. I don't love any of you that much. I just don't. I wouldn't want to leave my wife, a widow, to die for you. And you wouldn't die for me. You might think you would. You wouldn't. So if we, we might die for someone close to us. We might die for, it says, a good, one, a, a, a good man, which means someone in right standing. We're never going to die for uh, ungodly. A, a righteous man, you know, maybe. But what Paul's just being, he's just saying, maybe, maybe. No. 
verse 8 is one of those verses that's part of the Roman road. It's a great verse. I think it's up there with John 3.16. But God demonstrated his own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God proved his love. And it really means this. While we were yet in the process of sinning, but we were yet sinners. They talk about mankind. While mankind was in the process or the act of sinning, which they were doing by crucifying him, he died for all of us. Don't ever be misled. Christ died for everyone, but not everyone benefits from the death of Christ either. It's two separate things. He died so that any person might come to faith. And he did it because of the unbelievable love of God. People said Jesus died because he loved us. Well, yeah, he loved us, but Jesus died because God loved us. God showed his love. What's that song? God sent, uh, God sent his son, calls him Jesus, calls he lives. It's that song we rewrote, isn't it, that you and I get right and credit for? Thank you. Have we submitted that, by the way, to publishers so I can get some royalties out of that song? I guess not. Brian, I told Brian, he, I, he can write all the songs he wants. I just want my name on it. Is getting co-credit for it. I don't know if he'll do it, but he, he told me he would. He may, not admit, he may not admit it. So here's the thing. In the midst of sin, God sent Jesus. Now verse 9 says this, Much more than, overwhelmingly more, having now been justified by what? His blood. We were justified faith. Now we're justified by his blood. We keep getting better and better. With the, by faith in Jesus, but through faith in, you know, we had faith in Jesus, but it's because of the blood of Christ. He's shedding the blood. What did Jesus do to bring about justification? He shed his blood. Another rich, rich doctrinal understanding. We are saved by the blood of Christ. Through faith, yes, by the blood of Jesus. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We shall be saved. Now, what does it mean we shall be saved? I thought we were already saved. Salvation is a process. Let me just say this. There is a point. This stage is our, our life. There is a point right here where I cross from being lost to saved. Here I'm lost. Here I'm saved. But there were things that happened in that process that got me to that point. Those little kids over there in Awana, they are going through the process of getting to that point. Then after I'm saved, I live a life of growing and growing. But on the other side of my life is eternity. And when I cross into eternity, then I will be saved in terms of spending eternity with God. Then it's, it's done. It's over. There's nothing left except eternity with God. So when it says I will be saved, what it's talking about is not that I haven't been saved, but there's still something left to be done. My salvation is secure, but I'm not with Jesus yet. And so the blood of Christ guarantees not only the moment of salvation, but the whole process of salvation. So that when I pass on, I get to be with God. And I'll be saved. So verse 10 says this. For while we were enemies, which is before the moment of justification... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the, faith, through the death of his son. Notice, I was reconciled to God while I was his enemy. Who did the reconciling? God did. I was reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So in other words, being reconciled, being saved, same thing. 
The death of Jesus reconciled me. The life of Jesus saved me. And the, rest, you know, the resurrection, all of his life. But here's the point. I didn't, I didn't do something to make me right with God so that I could be saved. I was saved at the moment that I was still an enemy of God. It's an amazing thing. I had faith in God at the moment of when I was an enemy with God. Verse four, 5 says, we have peace with God now that we've been declared right. But before I was declared right, I didn't have peace with God. I was an enemy of God. Fighting against him. But then grace came and faith came and I, and I was saved through faith by the blood of Jesus because of the grace of God. And now I have peace and I have hope and I've experienced all that. So there's one more thing he says. And not only this, but we exalt or rejoice in God. We rejoice with God, in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Understand this. You can't get to God any other way but through Jesus. Because only Jesus reconciles us to God. So when people say they're Christians. And they believe that there are other ways to get to God. They are in serious, serious error. Deep error. Height of heresy. This is This is Paul who was an enemy of God, enemy of Jesus, out to kill Christians when Jesus saved him. And Paul says this so clearly to us. We are enemies of God, but God declares us right because of the grace that God has, because of the blood of Jesus, through the faith we have, and because he has declared us right. We are reconciled to God and are saved. But the only way that reconciliation comes is through Jesus. You can't be reconciled with God any other way. He talks about the wrath of God. We've already talked about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not like our wrath. His wrath is that attitude he has, that, disposi- that disposition, that, that holiness that cannot allow sin into his presence. It's not a, it's not a jealous fit of rage, an uncontrolled anger. It is, it is a purposed response to our sin. But with wrath there is love. Wrath and love are two sides of the same coin. And because of his love, he sent Christ to pull us out of that wrath so that we are reconciled with God. Think about it. I was his enemy. Now I have peace. Why? I've been reconciled with God. Reconciliation is an oftentimes overlooked but important part of the Christian faith. We are reconciled to God, and we ought to be reconciled to one another. This is why we don't have divisions, or not supposed to have divisions within the church, but we're reconciled. Think about it. We talk about the 28th. We're going to have a fellowship. We're going to have a picnic. We're going to have food. Baptists are really good at food. We're specializing in food. We're going to have, uh, you know, the hamburgers are fine. The deacons, you guys do a nice job picking the hamburgers. It's something you can't really mess up, but I'm sure you could if you tried hard enough. But all the other stuff y'all bring, it's really good. Some of y'all bring some really good things. Some bring, bring some deviled eggs. You ever, did I ever tell you about the problem with deviled eggs? We're going to have 300 plus people at a picnic, and we're going to have like a dozen deviled eggs. You ever go to a Baptist fellowship and somebody gets two deviled eggs? I curse them right there. You can't get two deviled eggs. Not enough. You ain't Jesus. You ain't breaking them and feeding everybody. And the kicker is that one deviled egg left, and there's 250 people. You can't get the last deviled egg. The person at the end of the line gets the last deviled egg. It's clearly written in Baptist polity. And if you take the last deviled egg, and you're not the last person, my 
goodness. You might as well just be Presbyterian. You have nothing left of that. So we're going to have fellowship. And then we're going to have baptism. We're going to symbolize that reconciliation with Jesus, with God, through faith and baptism. And we're going to have communion together. Lord, suffer. We're all together reconciled. And it's a great time. And then we're going to have business meeting and watch it all just go by the wayside. It's my fear. We're all one in Christ up to this moment. To be reconciled to your brother or sister in Jesus is to be reconciled to God. We live as a reconciled people. Now listen, I don't have any enemies. Some people may look at me as an enemy and that's fine. I, but I settled this with God a long time ago. But if I have a problem with someone, I have a responsibility to go reconcile with them. They have a problem with me, I can't help it. That's so many people, I spend all my time dealing with them. But as God reconciled me to him through faith in Jesus, who am I to be at odds with a brother or sister in Christ? So here we have the chapter 5. It says right above verse 1, the results of justification. Powerful. Next week we're going to talk about through one man sin came and through one man salvation came. But right here we are seeing our condition and all that is a part of being justified. If you are made right by God or declared right by God, these 11 verses, that's you. And if these 11 verses ain't you, you have something wrong. Questions you might have, and not about deviled eggs. Anyone? All right. I'll see you next time I see you. Thank you.